Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finar Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us Kirsten Greer, who's Associate Professor in the Departments of Geography and History at Nipissing University in Canada. Uh, she's also Canada Research Chair in Global Environmental Histories and Geographies. Uh, and she will talk today about her book, Redcoats and Wild Birds, How Military Ornithologists and Migrant Birds Shaped Empire, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press last year. So I would just hand the floor over to you, Kirsten. Thank you for having me here today and for everyone who's online right now. And it's been nice to actually talk about my book since I haven't been able to travel and promote it. And so thank you for inviting me, Dolly. And I'm just going to share my screen because I have some slides to go with my presentation. Just to introduce myself, I am actually from Montreal, Quebec, and I'm a settler of um, Norwegian, Swedish, and Scottish descent. My, my father was born in Glasgow. My grandfather was born in Sweden, and my great-grandparents are Norwegian that settled in the traditional territory of Abenaki in the Eastern Townships, Quebec. And so therefore, I would have loved to come to Norway for this talk, but I understand this is a pandemic project, and so it's nice to connect online. I currently live and work on, in North Bay, which is on the traditional Nibizing and Anishinaabek tra uh, traditional territory. And as well, the lands protected by the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850, which is a treaty that was signed at the same time as my time period that I focus on in my work. I'm just going to move you over here. I, I consider myself a critical historical geographer interested in human environment relations in the past, the environmental histories and legacies of the British Empire, and the politics of biodiversity heritage in the global North Atlantic. And so for those of you that don't know the history of geography as a discipline, I actually come from the humanities side of geography. And it's one of the few disciplines that actually intersects with the social sciences and the geophysical sciences, as well as the humanities. And I currently hold, I'm in my second term of my Canada Research Chair, which addresses specifically repertory practices in place from Northern Ontario to the Caribbean through interdisciplinary, integrative, and engaged community-based scholarship in global environmental change research. And currently I work in relationship with First Nation communities on Anishinaabeg traditional territory and collaborate closely with my colleagues in the geophysical sciences when examining past environments. My book, which began as a doctoral dissertation, is part of a longer research trajectory that challenges the way in which colonialism shaped geography as a discipline, and in turn, how geography as a Western positivistic discipline enabled different colonial projects, such as settler colonialism, resource extraction, and slavery. In other words, it addresses directly the decolonization of the geographical tradition, which have been has been embedded in epistemological histories of white privilege and related processes of othering into the discipline, or in what Stuart Hall's words has called ordering the world into the West and the rest. And as I argue in my book, 19th century zoogeography, which is a branch of biogeography, concerned with the distribution of animal species across the globe, was deeply embedded with ideas of masculinity, whiteness, and racial differences in the British imperial imagination. 
And in these ways, the book is grounded in the historical geographies of science. So Dolly mentioned that I should perhaps present how I came to my subject matter. And I wanted to use this painting that I came across when I was working at the Royal Ontario Museum in the Department of Ornithology in the early 2000s. And this is a painting by Cornelius Kragoff in the 1840s. And it's of an officer in his quarters, a British military officer in his quarters while he was stationed in British North America in Montreal. And um, if you look at the painting more in more detail, you'll see that the officer is sitting leisurely at his desk, reading a book among the various accoutrements associated with army service in British North America, such as the landscape paintings, the furs, the snowshoes, firearms, fishing gear, and uh, some bead, beading work from uh, First Nation communities, and as well, a bust of Shakespeare. But if you look even more closely, you'll see that there are five different species of birds in his quarters. Uh, you can see a scarlet tanager, I think an osprey, I don't know the species of owl, and uh, um, other birds. But this made me think, I know a lot of the work at the time has looked at instrumental science, such as botany and geology that were really important to you know, the colonial project but why were these officers interested in ornithology, identifying different types of birds? And so this is what made me interested in my subject matter because several questions crossed my mind when I was looking at this painting, uh, considering that British officers often occupied several imperial sites throughout their military careers, to what extent and in which way in what ways did British military officers engage in ornithological activities in different parts of the empire? And how were these activities facilitated by their postings at different sites? And did they help the advancements of the career? And how did imperial ornithologists encounter different local cultures with different attitudes to hunting, birds, field science, et cetera, and different local natures and different sets of birds, climates, environments? And so these were some of the initial questions that guided me into the research and my dissertation, which is now in book form. I also, at the time, had been in correspondence with David Lambert, a, a historical geographer at uh, Royal Holloway at the time, and I was going to be doing my PhD with him. And he and Alan Lester had been working on their book, Colonial Lives Across the British Empire. It was, uh, at that time, an edit version. And they shared with me their introduction to their book, which is a, a book, if you haven't read it, that really looks at the relationships between core and periphery or you know, Britain and its relationship with its colonies, but not um, expanding the idea of that, uh, that relationship to thinking about multiple sites across the empire and beyond the empire. And this really helped solidify the way in which I was going to approach my subject matter. And David Lambert ended up being my host supervisor uh, throughout my PhD that I did at Queen's University and my postdoctoral mentor in the end. And of course, being a historical geographer, I had been influenced by some of the historical geographers that focused on birds and the links between birds and landscapes and uh, mobile natures. And so Robin Doughty is one of those geographers 
that in the 1970s has had written about birds and, and the bird preservation movement. And these are just some of his other works if you're interested. And as well, Robert Wilson at Syracuse, uh, looking at the Pacific Flyway and migrant birds. So if there are any, I guess, students on here thinking about their projects, this is the way in which I approached mine. I started with what was out there in the archives as well as in the museums and the ornithological collections and the remnants that, you know, I could trace some of these military officers and their movements across empire. And I ended up focusing on these four military men, mainly because of the access to the archives um, and also that their, their birds were in, let's say the Natural History Museum uh, in London and other sites such as the Smithsonian. But then the challenge was, well, how would I do this? if they've been to all these places, all these colonies and they're stationed here, how do I narrow it down into you know, a, a dissertation, a four-year dissertation? And this is where I started thinking about the sites of intersection between these men. So not only were they from Britain, but what I found is that they all seem to have intersected in the, in the Mediterranean. And this was because of service, whether it was in the Crimea region uh, during the Crimean War or being stationed at Malta and Gibraltar, or even traveling through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal to go to India. And this is where conceptually the Mediterranean served as a site of convergence for these transient military men and migrant birds. And by focusing on the Mediterranean, I was able to capture the circuitry of empire. And so the Mediterranean was really important to the British Empire as this empire route, or what I've seen described as the artery of empire, in terms of securing the colonies in India, as well as other parts of the empire. And especially once the Suez Canal was built in the 18, 1869, it just took on more of a ge geopolitical importance. And it was through the garrisons and the military defense and Royal Navy that secured Britain's um, empire in this region. The one thing that I did not realize until I started studying these men is once they were stationed there, how much they were focused on uh, recording British migratory birds and their migrations. And so it was a, a really great way of integrating the birds into this study as well. And it was these men that were, were also starting to define what constituted a British bird because they would see their familiar birds coming and going in the spring and coming back in the fall. And uh, that was a, an unexpected surprise when I, when I conceptualized my work. So why did these men actually collect birds? I came out, uh, I guess, through my work and the findings, many unexpected um, I guess, uh, discoveries from this work. And the main contribution of my book, I guess, would be to how these men contributed to the field of zoogeography and the conceptualization of the zoogeographic regions of the world, and specifically the boundary lines between them. And, uh, and here in the Mediterranean, you'll see that there's the division between the Paleoarctic region and the Ethiopian 
zoogeographic region. And so the men that I was focusing on were definitely create, um, defining the boundary line between European avifauna and African avifauna. And so these men were, were connected to the British Ornithological Union and the Zoograph um, Zoological Society, London Zoological Society, the Royal Geographical Society, and networking with leading zoologists such as Philip Lutley Sclater, who he and Wallace were the ones that came up with the Sclater-Wallace system, which is still in use today. And so as I uncovered uh, the British military practices of ornithology really overlapped with um, geopolitics of the time and how this region, especially as they were documenting the birds in the region, the, the influence of climate on the birds behavior. And it was in this region that they started def defining what semi-tropicality was and that if a bird was in the tropics for too long or in the semi-tropical area, it's it somehow, especially the British birds that they were defining became more slothful, um, you know, just linking environment and the tropes that went with the trop tropical and temperate environments to the bird life that they also saw the, the climates themselves, the climates themselves affecting the British white body and what it meant to be a British military officer in these regions. And so there, therefore, I noticed a link between how they were describing mo transient or migrant birds uh, uh, um, with the, the uh, importance of a transient military body and that the Mediterranean was this halfway, they even call it a halfway house between temperate England and tropical India, and that you could only stay in the Mediterranean for a few years, up to five years to, to acclimatize before you went on to whether it was back home to Britain or to India. And so the importance of um, mobility and British military service was therefore becoming more promoted at the time and ideas of, I guess they, they would call it uh, I'm going to have to remember the word they were using at the time, but ra racial hygiene, they, certain, you know, what you would wear, making sure that, that you were um, engaging in rational recreation and things like that. And another unexpected finding was how North Africa became this informal empire and um, not only in Egypt, but in uh, Tangier here, this is where officers that were stationed in Gibraltar could go for six weeks without their military uniforms and really sketch the landscape and sites of resistance. So seeing where, you know, um, trade was very important to the garrisons in terms of the fruit and the meat that would be supplied at the garrisons, but then seeing how far into North Africa that they had British support or resistance. And so it was a form of surveillance because these military officers were also skilled in watercolor sketching. And so this was a form of geographical knowledge production in itself that would be then brought back to Britain at the time. And also in Spain. So obviously Gibraltar and Spain 
lot of geopolitical tensions there. And my last chapter, I focused on Aldershot. So the, the officers that I focus on in my book um, are in a specific place connected to the Mediterranean. I look at Thomas Blakiston in the Crimea. I look at um, Adams in Malta. I look at Irby and Gibraltar. And my last chapter is read it at Aldershot because I found that chapter the most exciting because that's when officers came back home to be stationed back home in Aldershot and how they brought their ideas of birds and of other colonies and what it meant to be a British bird. And it was amazing to see at Aldershot as well, how in Hampshire County, they were bringing it back to White's, you know, natural history of Selborne and as well, how these officers were therefore contributing to the new museum at South Kensington and the ornithological collections and display that would be comprised of the British birds and their life forms. And so the, these officers, Irby and then Reed specifically, did help to create these um, life diagram or dioramas of the British birds themselves, and therefore linking it to what it meant to be a British bird. And a lot of that had to do with a, a bird nesting and raising its young in Britain for a particular period of time. It could go away, but as long as it came back home, then that was still, that was considered a British bird at the time. And some of these cases are still around, but a lot of them were destroyed during World War II. Doing field work in Gibraltar and Malta for in the archives, but then also talking to a lot of Gibraltese and Maltese when I was there, they were asking me what, you know, what, why was I there? Why was I interested in this subject? And I was in Malta in 2009 during the EU elections. And what I didn't realize is that the bird hunting, migratory bird hunting issue was the number one issue of the EU in Malta at the time. And one thing that really struck me was how back in the 19th century, when I was looking at the British military station in Malta, how they started describing people that ate British song or migratory birds as pot hunters and uh, that they were semi-civilized because they would eat a robin redbreast or you know some of these birds that were revered back home in Britain. And um, I noticed that trope continued at least at the time when I was in Malta in 2009, that it continued to circulate in those ways. And it was put in sharp contrast when I was in Gibraltar. So the Malta, Malta used to be a colony of Britain, but Gibraltar is obviously still connected with the UK and how the different cultures of nature, even though they had similar histories, were put in contrast into what, you know, what is a, a EU citizen. And then I guess I learned more about how in Malta you have um, a, a campaign where many bird conservationists and tourists show up every spring and fall to stop the illegal hunting of bird, migratory birds. And a lot of those tourists are actually, or bird watchers are from England and from the UK. And how 
I guess my critique in my book, I start my introduction with talking about the war on birds in the Mediterranean, but then also cautioning towards the end of my book that these British bird watchers need to know the history of colonialism in Malta and how a lot of the bird ideas of um, bird conservation came from that time period and, and some of the stereotypes as well. And so that's how that, this part of my work entered into the book. And so I just thought, um, especially when I was in Malta, that the main bird that they used to for the bird Maltese bird conservation efforts is the robin redbreast. So anyway, that was just a quick overview of how I came about my book, but I look forward to some other questions that might spark more discussions about how I approach this subject matter. It, it was really interesting to hear about like that approach um, and thinking about the connections of people, their, their migration as well as the bird migration and how those two may intersect. Um, so one of the things that I was wondering about then are these military officers, where did they get their bird knowledge from? Obviously, they, they end up giving specimens back to the museum. Um, they're involved in, in that, but were they, do we know if, if these men were avid bird watchers before they entered the military or was this something about their service that made them interested? So another reason why I selected the four individuals that I did is because each came from a different military culture. For Thomas Blakiston, he was a Royal Artillery officer. And the Royal Artillery Royal Engineers were not only trained in cartography, surveying, they were also trained in natural history. And at the time, he, they were given instruction on how to collect natural history specimens in the colonies because that was a form of geographical knowledge production. And I do know he was interested in birds before, before his military career. And the Royal Artillery had a museum uh, at Woolwich that did include the, the bird specimens as part of the displays. And so that was the rotunda. And so there is a long tradition of Royal Artillery, Royal Engineer officers that were collecting birds even in the late 18th century in, in the US and sending those materials back to Britain. Then you had um, Adams that was trained as a, an army surgeon. And so we know that the surgeons as well, that was very important, natural history, and looking at the, the impact of environments on animal bodies. And then Irby was more of a recreational or he, he wasn't trained as much in the ornithological tra tradition, but it came with his gentlemanly, I guess, uh, position within Britain. He, his family was also involved with abolitionism. And I noticed the Quakers, he, he was associated with the Quakers at Norwich. And so we know the Quakers were very much into natural history. And then Reed was a Royal Engineers officer. So they did, most of them did have the training before they went overseas. And, it, and then it was through those networks, if they were in British North America, they were connecting with the colonial natural history societies, 
um, you know, all these different little scientific networks in the colonies as well. Really interesting. Um, Greg Deller asked as a follow-up to that. So they contributed specimens to the museums, but did any of them, you know, write scientific papers or or be involved in that kind of knowledge production? They did publish in the IBIS, which was the outlet for the British Ornithological Union, as well as the London Zoological Society had a periodical. So that's where I did find many of the articles that they published. They, I guess I call it the Avianum Imperial Archive because it was not only the specimens, it was their field diaries. A lot of their, the field diaries are at the archives at the um, Natural History Museum in London. And, uh, you know, from the field, the, the actual field guide to when the, the, their notes were published, it was the field guides that I found a lot of the assistance that they connected with in terms of being able to gain knowledge of the language, of the, the importance of the culture and the bird, and even assistance in collecting eggs and, and the specimens themselves. But those assistants were therefore erased in the actual published materials. Absolutely. So building then on, on those questions, so, like, so you describe, you know, uh, a group of officers, they work in the military and they do particular activities that are framed as part of you know, the, the military, uh, you know, goal to, to map out the world, you know, they're, they're surveying, they are identifying, uh, I mean, regions so they're gathering knowledge and so on so you know i can see this as you know a military relevant activity but you know what was the motivation for that was it really important in a military sense to gain this knowledge or is this a question of people who are really interested in well looking at birds being out in nature of you know doing watercolors you know more like leisure activities recreational activities and finding an excuse, perhaps, you know, shifting military activities in order to do that more. I mean, which I can see being the case. I don't know if you you know more about that. I would say it's all of that. Definitely rational recreation was really important to them because going through a lot of the military descriptions of these being stationed in different colonies, boredom was one of the, I guess, one of the, the main complaints about being stationed in a particular place. Also, the how weather or the climate did impact their activities. Um, it, it kept them mentally active. And that I know in one of my chapters, I, I write about Portlock and he was one of the military engineer, rural engineers at Woolwich and he, he promoted the uh, importance of recreational activity outdoors to maintain, I, I noticed there's a question about masculinity, but a particular British masculinity being, while being, uh, while stationed in a different place, like a tropical environment. And so there are many reasons why they were doing this. 
Yeah, I can see that it's this, you know, it, it's a complex entanglement of, of, yeah, reasons why you would be interested both personal and in, in the job. And Alan Knox had noted that, you know, Adams was the son of a keen ornithologist in Scotland. So you also come with kind of your background and your history. And so you'll gravitate towards things that interest you. At least you hope so, right? It's a job like, like any other job. These are military guys um, for their career. And imperial careering, that's another aspect, because if they were publishing, then they might be able to join an expedition, which Blakiston did, and that gave them credibility. And they also used their time of service in a particular place, because the longer they were in a place for, let's say, five years in Malta, then they could claim that they, they knew that place because of being there for an extended period of time, recording the birds for five years, their migration dates, and, and, and also be able to accumulate a collection of birds from a geographical location. That's the one thing that I found interesting is that it wasn't just about you know, collecting haphazardly these specimens. It was about type localities and a geographical collection of birds from a particular place, which I guess is a, a way that natural history changed in the mid 19th century, like the practices at least. Well, that that collection, I think, collect, uh, fits in well with Anna Elizabeth's question about making these birds British um, and and locating them geographically and saying, well, the, we these are what British birds are. Um, and her question of, you know, do you think that this essential way of making a bird British, if they nest and brood there, is still the tendency in contemporary campaigns against killing migrant birds in Malta? So it becomes this don't kill our birds. So the British activists can say, well, these are birds that would come and have their babies with us, but you're killing them when they're not at home. Yeah, definitely. That's what I picked up on when I was in Malta. So how did your ornithologists then, how did they handle the fact that many of these birds go into the other zone? So, so I'm thinking about the diagrams of, okay, so here's the paleo, the, Periodic. yeah. Or the Arctic zone, you know, that's all of basically all of Europe. And then you have that Ethiopian zone, but the birds cross this zone. So yeah, and, and as you said, they had this thing about temperate versus tropical uh, climate. So how did they think about why the birds would migrate there and what benefit or cost there was to doing that? I guess that, yeah, the, the idea of migration coming and going, as long as they weren't gone for too long. <laughs> um, I noticed that robin redbreast, because they don't, they're, they, they're found in the Mediterranean. And I know that they were being described because they, were, they, they lived there and they didn't migrate, the ones that, that were being observed, that somehow they had degenerated from being in a semi-tropical environment. They weren't really like our British birds back home because, again, they were lazier, really tying in how they viewed the impact of climate on a white body to the actual bird. That's where the whole racialization of nature 
I was teasing out in my work. Absolutely. So, so this, yeah, did they, did they directly apply things about migration between birds and people where they, they talked about, I mean, themselves as migrants did they compare themselves at all to to the birds and then how might that comparison have worked with other people who weren't coming weren't starting as british so that's where i noticed the stereotype of I, this is how it was described at the at the time the gibraltarians that were of mixed descent between spanish and british they were considered rock scorpions, and they were also seen as a degenerate. I'm, I'm just using the words from that time period, but they were not seen as British. They were seen as half civilized. And the same in Malta, they were called, uh, the Maltese were called, I'm gonna have to remember, they had also a, a word to describe the Maltese as being somewhat European, like they weren't British. They were that on the, on the cusp of Brit Britishness. Right, so some kind of mixed mongrel kind of idea um, going on there. Um, so let's see, Micah, you had a question. Did you wanna ask that um, yourself? I can press unmute if you're where you can ask it. Sure. Um, I guess actually Kristen's already sort of answered it. I was just hoping that she could talk more about masculinity and birding. And this is something that um, Anne and I have talked about a lot um, in our conversations about modern birding and the modern landscape in the community. So I'd just be curious to know more about how that um, came up in your book and in your research. Hi, Micah. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, masculinity, again, uh, I guess in my conclusions, I was really talking about the heterogeneity of, of some of these themes and masculinity for at least I start with Blake Astin and the idea of a, a war hero through collecting in the Crimean during the Crimean campaign, which was a campaign that the British, it was one of the first campaigns where they really, I guess, experienced vulnerability and incompetence. And so the idea of this um, military war hero collecting in the name of science somehow, at least they brought these, this knowledge back to Britain and, and the specimens and the, those are also in the museums that that was really important to white British masculinity at the time. And then, then with Adams was more about because of the connection to the body he that that was tied to racial hygiene and masculinity and he that's where i saw if the ideas of if he was stationed or if they if mil, white military bodies are stationed in tropical environments for too too long then their masculinity white masculinity would degenerate and they would become more effeminate and uh and then Irby again being on the rock of gibraltar if anyone's been to gibraltar that rock is quite significant, but that, that he was using, you know, descriptions of collecting birds on rockscapes and almost, you know, dying and using that form of, of describing that masculinity being outdoors and uh, collecting birds of prey, 
you know, the, that's where the birds of prey came into that chapter. I don't know, Micah, if that answered some of your question. In a way, that masculinity sounds very similar to the stories that we see on, on travel and tourism, like mountain climbing and so on, because it's also that like seeking danger and uh, you know, proving your masculinity through that. So I was wondering a bit about, uh, in a way, what happened then afterwards, later with these military guys that you look at, do any of them engage in then you know, nature protection, conservation activities? Do you see like, is there some, some influence from these activities that they take with them then later in life? So I noticed I my dissertation focused on, on these men, but I included avian chapters for my book and before each of each chapter. And the first chapter uh, in the Crimea, I looked at the, the uh, bustard, the great bustard, which had become instinct in Britain at the time. And the, the networks associated with the British Ornithological Union was, were promoting bird preservation at the time. But I noticed when they were in the Crimea, and they were, I guess the great bustard is, is very common there. And they were shooting them like crazy for food. And there's a, a famous, I guess, Florence Nightingale had a Christmas dinner and it was a great bustard that was fed to all the military army surgeons. But definitely with my chapter on Aldershot, when they came back home, they were very much about the conservation efforts in Britain. And that's why those displays of the British life, British birds and their life form was very important to teach the British public what was a British bird and that this is why we need to protect them. And you said many of those specimens probably they were not collected in Britain either, right? I mean, some of those, I mean, you could collect them when they were migrating um, in, in the colonies and then send them back and, and make them be the British birds, right? So um, I was oh, wondering- Oh, and that's where they, uh, they also had live specimens at uh, hmm. the zoological gardens. So there were not only the specimens in the museums, but they also made sure to bring back live specimens that would be on display at the zoo. I was wondering about these field notebooks. So I found it interesting that one, they're in the natural history archive, right? Rather than being in a military archive. Um, but then, so, so the, the actual collecting practices that they had and the people that would be required to help these, you know, gentlemen, military guys to collect. Um, you know, you mentioned there's there's probably indigenous populations that they're using. Did they use other soldiers too, like under their command? And how, how did that work? Like, oh, we're going out birding now, guys, you know, or what? <laughs> they definitely connected with other military soldiers um and they also it was because i was focusing on all of their travels i i could see how they would some of them would reconnect in a place like bermuda they they definitely created a network of military natural history uh, military like through the the, the all of the networks and um 
They also, I know when they were stationed in Gibraltar and going into Algiers, they were connecting with the British, the French um, soldiers that were also into natural history. So, you know, there was overlap between French and British, even in the Crimea. And, and then of course, the way that they were connecting with local cultures to gain um, that type of knowledge, but that they would then erase it when it came time to publishing. Yeah, I wanted to ask about exactly that. Uh, you know, those those connections, those networks, if they also then went across nation lines and perhaps even also then in people who were in opposition, like in a military sense, uh, if they would connect over birds. Uh, do you, have you seen examples of that? Sorry, can you ask that question again? Yeah, please? so you were talking about you know, these connections then that uh, the different military people would make around birds and how to connect over these birds. So do you see those connections also being made between opposing nations so that individuals could connect over this shared passion, interest in birds while their countries were technically in conflict? I did see the French and the British connections, but in the Crimea, I noticed that the French and the British, uh, they did notice the Russians were also interested in ornithology and birds. And I can't remember if it was the Russians that had a swallow, um, how, not swallow houses, <laughs> bird, not bird houses, but they, they, made, they built structures so that the swallows would visit and then they would eat the mosquitoes and everything. And they also, I know that there were descriptions of Russians collecting birds as well. I don't know if there was overlap between you know, those nations, but I did see that. What about between different military groups? Jar Jared was wondering, um, the army officers versus Royal Navy officers who would have had similar interests. So my postdoc look, looked at the Royal Navy officer networks and they were all, they were all connected um, in Bermuda. So I focused on Bermuda for my postdoc work. And that's where I saw the Royal Navy and the army officers all connected and all these, you know, activities and, um, and, and sharing of specimens and knowledge. So then I was wondering about the specimens themselves. So did they talk about the ways in which they prepared the specimens? Because of course, when you when you shoot a bird, if you're actually going to keep it, you, you can't just keep it like, because it'll rot. Um, so you need to do preparation practices. You need to, you know, take out the insides and leave just the skins, uh, potentially taxidermying it, right? So your picture, um, of the officer's um, study has taxidermied birds, so they're prepared, mounted, stuffed. Um, so I was wondering if they talked about those activities and were they the ones that did those or did they have their men who did that for them? I know I saw in Mal the Maltese journals, there was a Maltese taxidermist that they used and there was a secret recipe for how to preserve birds that was secret it even said he will not share you know the ingredients 
Um, I did see in British North America that they they really drew from the First Nations way of uh, stuffing moss in the birds for preservation. Definitely that was a, an issue though, if they were stationed in a place and they had to send the birds back on a ship, you know, how do, you, how do they make sure that they, those specimens are preserved over long periods of time and travel? Absolutely, it's, it's a big problem, right? So that they'll break down over time if you're not very careful, if you don't, if there's moisture like on the ship, um, you know, so you need to send them in, in kind of sealed cases and that kind of um, thing. I was wondering um, then if they had particular kinds of birds that they tended to be interested in, not just the Britishness, but usefulness. Did they find some particular birds more interesting because you, like you mentioned, um, swallows that might eat insects. So therefore they were interested in those kind of insect eating birds, for example. Yeah, that was the main example that I saw on how certain bird species were important to British military culture in that way. I'd have to think about that question some more about other examples. Did they do uh, lists of birds that you know they should see? Like, oh, if you end up then in Malta, you you should see Checklist. these birds. You know, you haven't really been in Malta until you've seen all these birds in this list, like a lot of people do nowadays. The creation of bird lists. If you look at some of their published books, they'll always have the list of birds at the back, <laughs> and uh, I guess that was you know the creation of bird lists birding lists and checking them off yeah because i'm wondering you know about you know do you get in a way the the formation of particular geographical identities of places you know so uh did did then particular places become more attractive to go to for them because of particularly rich bird life and so on so would people really try to to be stationed in in particular locations because of that I think in Gibraltar that was the case because of the, the the birds of prey that they would be able to see on top of the rock. I noticed that that was really important. And one of the sites, if you're a, an ornithologist at the time, a British ornithologist at the time, where they could actually see these birds in in in, in the wild. And, and collect them. And that's the ironic part is that even though they were promoting bird conservation, they were also some of the people that ended up shooting some of the last birds that were that became extinct, like a Labrador duck in Halifax. OK, was that shot by a military person? Yes, that, a Labrador duck. Oh, that's fascinating. So did they uh, trade these birds then that they collected? So there were also like networks of birds being shipped around to in exchange also or? Yep, they were being exchanged, exchanged amongst officers, Royal Navy officers, but as well as in those colonies. I was telling you about the local colonial scientific networks. Specimens were exchanged throughout those networks as well. Well, then, um, so with this, uh, so is the Labrador duck talked about in the book? Yes. Yes, so okay. I that was in the chapter on reed because I show reeds or 
No, it might have been with Blakiston because Blakiston was in Halifax and Reed was in okay. New Brunswick. Okay. Okay. Because I have to go. I have to go look for that for sure. I think it was I under the Blakiston chapter because he was there and the Blackburn. There was a Blackburn officer, with, I believe, was the one that shot the last Labrador duck. So I was wondering about documentation other than skins. So did. Did they use, you had the one picture of a, you know, of a painting. Did they actually draw or, or paint these bird species? Did they later take photography um, of these? Um, you know, were they interested in, in kind of documenting it other than the actual skin itself? I did see, so the watercolors of landscapes, but they also included some of the bird species in those watercolor landscapes. I have seen sketches of birds specifically in the field journals. And then I, I later on with photography, that was in the Gibraltar chapter where photography was being used by the late 19th century as a way of showing, it was part of the fieldwork practice of showing that the officer was there. They, they, photograph the bird in its life form, like its habitat. And that became integrated into ornithological practices, field ornithological practices at the time. So Greg Deller had another question that I think is really interesting to think about. So these four guys that you look at were all bird people, but did they have other kinds of species that they liked too? Um, you know, mammals or or the insects or were do you know if there were other people, you know, who liked those things? And in particular, he's thinking, for example, a lot of those areas they go to also have big game hunting, right? That that was a major pastime in in the uh, British colonies um, in South Africa and in India. Um, so which are of course also are related to as he points out masculinity, race, domination of nature. So did you see connections between the ornithology and other kinds of species people would be interested in? So I did see um, these officers would be interested in butterflies. I've seen fish. The big game hunting is interesting because I noticed that the ornithological collectors were very much, you know, they were shooting small little birds versus a big game animal, but it was about the precision, you know, knowing exactly where to find the bird and, and being able to, to bag it. And so that's where that type of connection to the you know, masculinity and hunting came in. You know, they, they weren't bringing back the giant trophy, but it was much harder to collect a really small warbler than, you know, a big game animal. Absolutely. I know that, so the, you know, the, the, the officers doing the watercolor sketching, landscape watercolor sketching, they were also collecting geological specimens. So there's a lot of overlap with all the natural history um, practices and interests. Right. So they were tying the not just birds, but but this interest in in nature in general and what was there and what the resources uh, were and, you know, how nature functioned in this place. Um, I, argue, I argue they are the I guess when you think of the history of geography as a discipline, they were the first like colonial imperial geographers because they were documenting all of the 
all of the environment in the landscapes that they were stationed in. And that was all useful to the, the colonial or the British um, colonial project in terms of future colonization or resource exploitation. Yeah, creating this, uh, this catalog of, of knowledge of what's available there and where to find it, right? So, um, you know, it's not only that you have to have skill to shoot the warbler, but you need to know where it is, as you point out. So that becomes a point of knowledge um, that you can yeah, have as a colonial power um, in this case. And as Alan uh, pointed out, you know, Adams, for example, also did paleontology, oh, yeah. paleontology work and found fossilized dwarf elephants um, mm -hmm. on Malta. So yeah, so, so they, they were bird enthusiasts, these guys, but they also, you know, had other kinds of, of nature scientific interests, which I think is really interesting also um, for showing how diverse um, you could be in terms of your interests. So, um, yeah, so what's next for you as far as um, in your in your current uh, research? Are you continuing to look at any of these themes, but in different directions or? The one thing that I've been working on is related to the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850 in this region, because the officers that I, the network of officers I've been looking at and following were also here. And what I wanna know is what did they know of the territory prior to the signing of the treaty in terms of geology and botany, because they were documenting all of that and because I work in relationship with Nipissing First Nation and Dokis First Nation in this region, that uh, I know that a lot of some of the materials were taken without consent from the region and sent to some of the museums across North America and, and in Britain. And particularly there's a birch bark map that um, was of this region, uh, the, tr the trade route, and it was done by Anishinaabe person. And um, Bainsbridge, he was into geology and watercolor sketching. And what he did is he, he carved the birch bark map off the tree. And then he placed it on a piece of paper and redrew the map and in a derogatory way said, oh, you know, the people here, they, they know how to, they know place, they know their territory and they know how to do cartography. And that's at the British Library. That map is at the British Library right now. It was sent to the military, I forget the United Service Institution at first and that collection ended up at the British Library. So thinking about ways of repatriating these materials back to where they belong. And so I've been doing that and then also, uh, we have a pandemic project. This is, you know, thinking about humanity or environmental humanities. We have a, an exhibition that's opening up next week called the Lake Nipissing Beating Project. And what we've done working with Carrie Allison, our, the lead artist, is a map, using a map of Lake Nipissing, uh, creating a beating community art space beating project where participants during all the lockdowns and, you know, in order to stay active and get people connected. Each person has been beating a square of Lake Nipissing based on remote sensing imagery. 
And so we're going to be putting together that map of over 440 pieces of Lake Nipissing in Halifax at the Treaty Space Gallery next week. We're opening that up. And so that's where my efforts are right now. But like you said, this is a pandemic project, this series that you've created. And so that has been a pandemic project for us. Will that end up online in some way where you can see parts of it? Yes, we have a, a website devoted to the project called Lake Nipissing Beating Project. Yeah. We have an Instagram account where we've been uploading all the different contributions that will be put together and a Facebook site. And oh, then yeah. it'll be traveling here next summer because we weren't sure about COVID restrictions and it's yeah. going to be a traveling exhibition. So yes, that's online. Sounds great. I would check it out there since the odds of me traveling to see it in person are slim at the moment. So, but thank you to uh, everyone for coming. Uh, and also thank you then to, to Kirsten Greer for talking about uh, her book, which uh, I just need to make sure I remember the title, Red Coats and Wild Birds. So thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for everyone for being here and asking um, some questions about my book. I really appreciate it. <laughs>